Today's episode was a little bit different. We did an episode on the startup and investing ecosystem in Southeast Asia. Sachin and I have both traveled pretty extensively around the region and we find it a really, really fascinating place. And we think that the demographic tailwinds and innovation that's happening in the space is gonna make it a really, really special place in the future as it already is. So today we interviewed Peter Hun of Qualgo and Tusha Roy of SquarePay Capital, two Australians that are both spending their time in Singapore investing. So we hope that you get some really, really specific uh, knowledge bombs from this one and you enjoy it. Thanks. We are super excited to announce that you'll be joined on this episode by our first sponsor, Recess, the furniture startup. So Recess sells everything you need for your home and office and they've sent us one of their products, which is their office chair. And oh my God, it is the most comfortable thing I've ever sat in. I'm actually really jealous of Sachin because I had a feel in it and it is incredibly comfortable. It makes you more productive. And I'm stuck on this chair, which is about to break at any minute. Recess has helped thousands of Aussie startups, including the likes of Eucalyptus, Afterwork, and Leica. They also have enterprise customers such as Mervac. How you feel when you're working really matters for your productivity and just for your health as well. So if you want to get fitted out with some furniture, whether it's an ergonomic chair or a soundproof box, let us know. We've got discounts for B2C customers for 20%. And if you're a B2B customer, let us know and we'll sort you out. And we didn't want to tell you this because it's not peer reviewed yet. But ever since I've sat in this chair, it's increased my productivity by 300%. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Sachin Adam Show. So normally if you've been watched our virtual podcast before, you've seen one person on the screen. But today we have two very, very talented investors joining us from very different parts of the world. Yeah, this is um, a super exciting podcast and it's a first of a kind for us because we're actually doing a discussion episode and we're sort of leading this with the thematic of Southeast Asia. And so me and Sachin, we've traveled around the region to quite a lot of the countries and adjacent countries. And I think we're both really, really fascinated by the sort of cultures and, but also like the sort of maybe exponential growth that is starting to hit off in the region. And I guess from my perspective, it feels like this is where China was maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, maybe a little bit less. And so I think it's a really exciting time to dive deep into this region. And we're really, really lucky to be joined by two of sort of most well-known Australian venture investors that are invest in Singapore. So today we've got Peter Hun from Qualgro, who he's a co-founder of the venture capital fund Qualgro. And we've also got Tusha Roy, who's a partner at SquarePeg, um, which is one of the most well-known Aussie funds. So thanks a lot for coming on, guys. Happy Thank to be here. Cool. Well, the question that we always love to start with, with our guests is sort of starting a little bit personal and asking you who you are at your core. So maybe starting off with you first, Peter, how would you describe who Peter Hun is at his core? <laughs> this is such a, a good question. You've gone right to the heart of it from the very beginning. Um, um, I've been teaching mindfulness for, uh, it's well, it's about 15 years or so that I've been teaching mindfulness. And uh, um, this is one of the sort of key questions, which is who am I, right? Who am I? What am I about? What do I want to bring into this world? And so for me, I figured out a while ago that the core of who I am is about helping myself and helping folks that um, I truly admire to um, realize their dreams, realize their ambitions, realize their potential. So that expression sort of comes into the world through the nature of my work. And so whether it's venture capital, right, helping founders to realize their dreams, their ambitions, their, their, their vision, their goals, or whether it's through my mindfulness uh, work, which I do on the weekends, working with founders uh, to help them sort of, you know, uh, build the tool set 
and the, the skills uh, and sort of leveling up in this in, ter in terms of their sort of mindfulness so that they can sort of withstand this journey right uh, and lead a team um, so that's the that's the that's the core of who I am guys you know if you're sort of asking the question you know it's 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 um, the core of who I am is about um, uh, helping others and myself as well to to do our best to realize our dreams and our potential and our ambition that, that that's what i'm all about do you um start your board meetings with your portfolio companies with a bit of meditation peter <laughs> maybe not at the start possibly at the end <laughs> more the off-sites rather than the board meetings uh, so if i ever do it it's more off-site <laughs> rather than board meetings but but yeah yeah i think if there's like a really valuable value add you can give to founders it's like really helping them sort of elevate understand themselves and become more mindful that's um that's amazing what about you tush what would you say to the question of who you are at your core i think that was a pretty insightful answer from peter and um, pretty hard act to follow. I, I wish I'd gone first and also prepared a bit better for this. But <laughs> as I as I reflect on who I am and my core, um, I guess the the word that comes to mind is is confused. Um, you know, I'm 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 a, I'm a fourth culture kid. I'm not really that young anymore, but I'm a fourth culture kid. I was born in primary school in India, secondary school in England, um, tertiary most of it was Australia. Um, and so I've lived for chunks of my time in India, England, Australia, and for the last two and a half years, I've, I've lived in Singapore. It's the fourth sort of region that I'm living in. Uh, and frankly, I'm, I'm completely confused. I don't know where home is. Um, I don't know where I really fit in. But as a result, I've sort of learned along the way to, to, to learn about, adapt to, and integrate very quickly into different settings, which is something I think that helps me in, in my role today. But yes, that's, that's unfortunately, um, I'm pretty confused at my core. That's who I am at the moment. That's really interesting. Harry Stebbings, just before this episode, posted a tweet saying that a lot of the best founders he's seen, they have these sort of really diverse trajectories when they're young, where they're moving schools a lot in different cities, because it sort of forces you to become an adaptable person. And you're a bit of an outsider as well. So you've sort of got to learn to think for yourself and you're not that much part of a herd. Yeah, that, that, that's very powerful. And thank you for sharing that. I feel like this episode is already off to a good start. Yeah. Um, Kind of as a segue into introducing this episode, we'd love to hear about kind of both of your connections to the Southeast Asia region. We know that a lot of Australians travel to Singapore to, to work, but how did you both end up kind of going over there with your respective venture funds? Um, why don't we start reverse and start with you, Tush? Yeah, so I, I previously lived in Singapore when I was doing my MBA about 15 odd years ago. So I had some exposure to the region then, but really, you know, the, the promise of the region in terms of venture investing really um, manifested itself when I first started at SquarePeg about eight years ago. One of the first diligences that I was thrown into was for a, a Southeast Asian company called Property Guru, which is like the domain or REA of, of the region. Um, and I remember traveling with Paul to, to visit the management team and diligence the company and decide whether we want to invest or not. We, we actually ended up investing. It was the largest check at the time that SquarePeg had written. But also just being there and, and property guru, like many companies in the region had operations, not only in Singapore, but in, in Indonesia in Thailand, other countries, it just really opened my eyes to what was happening around that region um, in terms of the tech ecosystem that was evolving, but also just on the ground, just the, the, the energy that was there, the vibrancy that was there, the growth that was happening. And I, I remember going back, back to Australia and saying to the partners saying, guys, something is going to happen here. Um, I think we need to be be here more and I would love your permission to, to be in this region a bit more and just noodle around and experiment and see what 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 prospects it might hold, which they thankfully agreed to. And that sort of led to us now having 
a Singapore office and a big team on the ground. Well, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you were kind of the first one to spearhead that Singapore expansion. That's um that's very powerful. Um, what about you, Peter? Yeah, I mean, I was born in Vietnam, uh, grew up in, uh, in in Sydney, and um, I'd always wanted to, you know, to, in my work, be connected more deeply, connected back to you know where I came from. And so, um, you know, uh, in 2011, I was working with Singtel Group in their corporate venture capital um, fund called Singtel Innovate. And so that gave me an opportunity to be connected, uh, you know, from a Singapore perspective, but also, you know, uh, that fund in invested all around the world, um, uh, mostly in the US and some in Israel, but also some investments in Southeast Asia as well. And I started there in 2011, left in 2015. I left in 2015 to set up a fund called Polgro uh, with a few other colleagues. And the idea was to um, make, you know, sort of Southeast Asia investments more core of uh, what we do, as well as investing in Australia and New Zealand. So we were one of the relatively rare funds at the time. I think that was investing in both in Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand. And so we had two partners at the time with Australian backgrounds, but with connections into uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, and then we had one other partner who, um, our managing partner, Hyang, who is uh, uh, French Cambodian. And so, uh, you know, we had sort of various connections uh, uh, into Southeast Asia. And so it's sort of tying that back together. And so it's always, it had always been a dream of mine to be able to, to do that. Maybe just to sort of draw a bow, bow tie around the story. Um, uh, just this summer, just uh, past the summer holidays, um, I took my uh, kids, my boys uh, uh, and my wife and, and my, my folks as well, my parents back to Vietnam to go to the, our hometown my folks have been to Vietnam a few times in the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so, but they've never been back to our hometown since they left uh, 40-ish years ago. And I've never been there. And, and so when we were all there together, looking at where my folks grew up and with my boys there, and it was a really emotional time, it sort of, you know, brought back to me this sort of um, tying the, the worlds together. And also, as Tush, as you mentioned, you know, just feeling the energy. Right. I don't know if any of you uh, have been to Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon. Yeah. You know the energy there is just incredible. So um, yeah, that, that that that's my story. That's my connection back to Southeast Asia. I, I had a similar story, Peter, where my um my parents were both born in Africa, and my grandparents got kicked out by the dictator at the time, Idi Amin. Um, it came to mm. Australia, but we went back. I think it was 40, 35 years after they they first left and gone back to where their old house was and stuff, and it was extremely powerful um that, that kind of uh, personal resonance wow those would be <laughs> such profound experiences i'm just imagining that seeing home after all those years um would love to move on to understanding what excited you to the region because both of you you've spent time in australia but you obviously got sort of gravitationally pulled to the region and there's so much happening on so many different dimensions but Starting with you, Peter, what really drew you in to the region? What, what excites you about the future of Southeast Asia? Yeah, I think it starts with the sort of entrepreneurial spirit of the region. Um, and uh, you feel it um, You feel it in Jakarta, you feel it in uh, um, uh, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, you know. Uh, I think that's the core of it. And um, maybe... It, Maybe it's a, it might be a, there might be a layer between that and sort of what you see in in Singapore it might not be quite as obvious, but there is this powerful entrepreneurial spirit uh, throughout Southeast Asia. I think you know one of the statistics is I think in Vietnam, um, roughly half of the population is in its thirties or or, or or under, mm. right? 
And so there, you know, it's, it, it's a young population, it's growing. And for folks who want to learn more about Southeast Asia, just sort of the, 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 the demographics and the sort of key data points, there's a, um, there's a report that's uh, done by Temasek, which is the um, uh, Song Rock Fund Singapore. Report. Oh my God. Right, Google and Bain. Uh, I think uh, they started doing the report in 2016 there. It's kind of like, I call it like the Mary Mika report of the region. And so, you know, definitely take a look at that report. It comes out every year and it's got all the data points around why, you know, Southeast Asia is such a, an, uh, an exciting market. And it's, it's all about growth, right? Digitization of and connectivity of the region, you know, a really young population, you know, explosive growth. And of course, uh, much more so in B2C at this point in time, but you know, we have some exceptional B2B companies that have um, uh, come from the region uh, as well. But yeah, I mean, the core of it for me is the entrepreneurial spirit of, of the region. Yeah, that, that's something really wonderful. And Adam and I, our first angel check we ever wrote was actually into Uganda, which has a lot of kind of similar wow. thematics. And I think in those regions, and I assume it'd be similar in Southeast Asia, there's like a really high proportion of people that are classified as entrepreneurs under maybe not tech entrepreneurs, but they are entrepreneurs, right? Because of necessity, they've mm. had to hustle to build their own businesses, which I think is really powerful. Mm. And before we move to you, Tush, I'd just like to sprinkle some stats to kind of just set the perspective a little bit. So there's 680 million people in Southeast Asia and more than 400 internet users. And the internet... 400 million. <laughs> internet users. And the penetration <laughs> is as high as 70%. So I'll just use that as a little kind of segue in, into you, Tush, and what excites you about the region. Yeah, look, a lot of what a lot of what Peter has said applies for me as well. I'm a VC. Like, what do VCs really look for? We look for the intersection of big problems to be solved through technology and, and great teams that are trying to solve them. And I think when you think about Southeast Asia as a region, that, that the region presents a growing number of opportunities at that intersection. Um, you have some of the fastest growing economies in the world, right? That's that's what you have. It's right on our doorstep from Australia. Um, they're people that are growing quickly in wealth. The middle class is just ballooning. Um, the population is extremely young. But as Peter said, half the population of Vietnam is under 30, which is a crazy, crazy stat. All mobile first, all tech first. And so you have these economies that are just like rocketing, but you also have needs and requirements that come with that. People want more. They want, and they want access to stuff. They want access to um, better healthcare. They want access to education. They want access to financial services. And the existing infrastructure, the bricks and mortar infrastructure, just can't keep up. There's no way it can keep up with the, with the, with the growth of the economy. And so what that creates is this, is this beautiful opportunity for technology to be the answer and to, to solve the problem. Um, and that's really what excites me. It's like, okay, this something, the only way this will work for these people is if someone builds a tech business that can solve these problems at scale. Um, and so that's what really excites me, is big problems to be solved rising economies and increasingly a growing number of founders that I think are there to build really, really big businesses. Yeah. I think like from just listening to that, it really jumps out at you that it's such an exciting macro play. You, you hear the population, the internet penetration, and also the need for really, really critical services. So there's so many things that are aligning to make it such um, an attractive place for growth, but also impact as well. And for, for the next question, I'm really interested in understanding the differences about building and investing in Southeast Asia and Australia, because you've both been privileged to work in both countries. But I thought I'd frame the question a little bit differently. Let's say I've been working in venture capital. I'm young. I'm like 26. I've been working here in Australia for three years. I go to work with both of you at your firm. So I moved to Singapore. In my first year there, what would you want to get me sort of understanding about the region? 
what what are, what would you want me to understand about business, society, and the economy that would actually prime me to be a good investor in the region? Um, we'll go with you, Tush, first. Gosh, that's a that's an interesting question. If you were coming here from Australia, I mean, actually, this, this kind of happened. We have a, someone in our team called Ed Barker who is 26, and he moved to Singapore to start the Singapore office with me. And what I encourage him to do, which is what I would encourage you to do, is to just spend time in the market, because the every every city is different. And you, you can read the, the, the reports and the reports are excellent, but it's only when you hit the ground in Jakarta or you hit the ground in Ho Chi Minh and someone tries to snatch your bag when you cross the road or someone tries to do something else or you see the people walking around with stores, just how, what the quality of life is and what they're doing to survive, that you really understand like, okay, this is the market that I'm playing in. And, and when you therefore evaluate opportunities that are, that are taking place in those markets, you have that visual context of like, wow, is this actually going to work given everything I know about Jakarta? Is this e-scooter play going to work because the traffic is completely shithouse? Um, so um, I would encourage you to just spend time in the markets, getting to know it. And the other thing is that, you know, for all the promise of these economies, these are still in many, in many cases political economies. You know, the, the, the way of doing business, the rule of law, very different. So you've just got to be quite street smart and savvy in, in understanding the risks to businesses. Um, you've got to have much more of a, an eye to who the founders are, what the team is, and, and what the connect, connective tissue behind them is. Things that you don't really think about as much in Australia, right? Um, so that's what I, those are a few examples of things that I would I would advise you on. And, and get uh, a, a quick follow-up to that. Is there any kind of practical examples of how you would kind of do business differently in different cities across Southeast Asia? So maybe like a Ho Chi Minh compared to a Jakarta? I don't know, Pete. Do you have any anything that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, um, there are some... One of the rules that we have, for example, is that if we're going to invest in a Vietnamese company, we would have to have the holding entity in Singapore. So the holding entity in Singapore would then wholly own that, um, you know, that, that Vietnamese company. And so that's a requirement actually that we have for our investment in companies in, in, in Vietnam. Uh, in Indonesia, we don't have that requirement. So that might be, you know, maybe a, a, a delta that's there. Singapore tend, is, a, is a hub for the region. So um, companies tend to look to incorporate in Singapore at some point in time anyway, whether as a holding entity or subsidiary or whatever it might be. But um, that is one of the sort of practical, you know, <laughs> practical differences. In terms of the sort of nuances of, of style and those sort of things, there, I mean, um, the, 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 the content is different, but the nature of the difference is relatively consistent. By that, I mean, for example, um, you want to know um, which sort of, what, what are the family office connections, right, that a, a business or a founder might have, uh, whether in Vietnam or in Indonesia. Now, of course, in Australia, um, that has some level of importance, but it's probably not that important. But in Southeast Asia, that has a much greater level of importance because it can, you know, uh, it can sort of, dictate to you uh, uh, the sort of um, maybe some um, uh, limitations or some opportunities or some things, things to be mindful of uh, because of the way that the different family offices interact with each other and work with each other. So it's good to be aware of that. So um, yeah, maybe that there's some nuances that could, could be interesting for, for the audience. Yeah, I've heard that as a common critique of investors that kind of move to the region that they don't understand the nuances of different markets. So I thought I'd ask that. And kind of as a bit of a follow-up to that, what are kind of some different heuristics you guys have learned to evaluate businesses in the space? And I know this is such a massive question, so I'll kind of leave with some examples. So we hear that kind of popular leapfrog analogy where 
Um, you see a lot of businesses in the region that leapfrog um, various technological innovations that may have happened first. So a big example is mobile phones versus kind of um, telephone lines. What are like some kind of um, heuristics or things you guys think about differently compared to the Australian market? I'll give another one because I know this is such a loaded loaded question. Maybe something even around how um, maybe contract sizes and spending power may be different. And so how you then evaluate the market size of a business. Um, I'll start with you, Tush. Uh, it's an extremely broad question um, and, and it depends a lot by the, the type of business. But yeah. generally, I think relative to investing in Australia, like when, 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 when this question was first posed to me, um, it was more like what are the big differences that I see between Australia and Southeast Asia? And I think if you're investing in this region, you're coming from Australia, you have got to become a lot more at ease with certain things that are just half of the course. For example, a Series A company in Southeast Asia will have multiples time more people in it than in a Series A company in Australia, uh, because just the, the labor cost of the way you think about that incremental hire is very, very different. Mm. Um, so you can have like Series A companies with hundreds of people in it, uh, which is just, just doesn't happen in Australia, for example. Um, other, other things that are different here, which, which cause consternation in a, in a global IC like mine is, in, in a, you know, you have to be comfortable with business model um, elasticity and 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 the desire and effort of a company to do many many things at the same time whereas in australia i think the businesses tend to be more purist and, and more focused on solving one problem with one business model mm -hmm. so an example of that is you know athena in australia is is sort of digital mortgage financing right and they just want to do mortgages and they want to do it better than any bank and, and that's what they want to do and they, and they can be a really big business doing that in, in Southeast Asia, you have a company like Credivo, which is a portfolio company, which started in BNPL, then moved to personal loans, and now it's becoming a complete, a full-on bank. So it's like, like you know, an investor from a developed market might say, hang on, what are you guys actually doing? You're doing like six different things. They're like, yeah, we are. We're going to win all of them. So it's just a very different mindset to approach complexity in businesses. Yeah, before we go to you, Peter, I... Any kind of learnings about how to navigate that global IC tush? Because I can imagine that if someone doesn't have context and you guys have you know, an office in Israel as well. How, how do you navigate those cultural differences and ensure you're explaining them and giving them the right context to make the right decision? Uh, it's, it's, there, there's no shortcut to it. It's just yeah. about having the fluid comms in the team. It's about people spending time in market. So, you know, most people in the Aussie team would have spent time in Singapore at least um, yeah. over the last couple of years. Um, it's about getting all people in our investment team to interact with all our founders across all the geos. So last year, um, we had all of our founders spend a week together in Tel Aviv. Yeah. Um, and that was a great chance for everyone to learn from each other and understand the different contexts of people. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, over to you, Peter, if you, if you have an answer to that question. Yeah, maybe just to build on Tush's point, you know, um, uh, if you think about uh, a Series A company or even younger, I mean, you know, pre-A company um, scaling with like a, uh, an outbound, uh, you know, physical human sort of um, sales force, you'd think that was crazy but you know this sort of uh, um there are quite a few companies that have scaled throughout the region using this sort of agency model where um you know there are there are folks who it, it's a manual process of even believe it or not door to door door to door sales right <laughs> manual door to door sales in this sort of agency model of scaling uh, and, and this is to sell SaaS subscriptions wow. okay <laughs> so uh you have to get used and, and it still can be like um um you know cost effective 
right? And so, um, I mean, you know, uh, uh, there are nuances in the way that it's delivered and, you know, impact on churn and those sort of things are, are the incentives, uh, you know, well aligned, uh, you know, in terms of acquisition versus churn. But, you know, um, uh, having said that, uh, they're the types of things that you've just got to get used to. Uh, you have to have an open mind. They can't just be the Silicon Valley playbook right that is uh, 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 you know uh, adopted and then just applied in the region it can't work that way it shouldn't work that way there should be some synthesis and in fact i think in some ways there are learnings that can probably go back you know on, on the other end but uh, in, in any case you know that that's um, you know that's one example of just something that you just have to get used to uh, you know uh, and maybe another thing is you know having a pre series a company be able to deliver 25 24 by 7 uh, customer support Right, it's like, yeah, yeah. like that's crazy for 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 us to th even think about that, uh, you know, uh, in, in Australia. But um, that's possible, um, uh, you know, in in parts of Southeast Asia. Yeah, those are super interesting answers, especially the one on the labor costs. I saw that really distinctly. I just came back from Bali um, like a month ago, and you go into the restaurants, and there's so many people there, and the service is just incredible. Or you go into a pharmacy, and someone's right there, ready to serve you, and like so many people to help you and it's all a product of labor costs. That's a really interesting heuristic. Cool. So something we're really interested to hear from you is where you think the next sort of big opportunities are in the region. So I think like what Southeast Asia has been really known for is e-commerce delivery and a lot of the super apps. And from talking to a few people, I've heard B2B SaaS is the region isn't quite as well known for that. And I think there's a few things about what we're just talking about with labor costs. Um, there's some reasons of that that are involved. So starting with you, Peter, what do you think are some of the really big opportunities in the region? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I do think it's driven by, to some extent, need. And so I, I mean, um, uh, we're looking at um, health-related businesses because the, the health-related needs for the region continue to, to grow, I mean, not dissimilar, I guess, to, to many other parts of the world. Agritech, um, because the you know, uh, food-related needs of the, of the region, of course, uh, continue to grow. Surprisingly, in SaaS, I, I know that there is this notion of you know, uh, B2B SaaS not being a strength of the region. I, I would agree with that, particularly at an enterprise and mid-market level, but we're seeing some super interesting um, sort of SME or even micro SME um, oriented um, B2B SaaS companies uh, helping those businesses solve their problems around invoicing, around, you know, uh, um, managing their staff, that type of thing. And um, the ability to, to grow those, um, uh, those SaaS businesses really quickly uh, um, uh, at the sort of you know, really sort of micro SME, uh, uh, SME level. So, um, yeah, they're the sort of... Um, uh, areas that we're, we're looking at, interested in. Of course, there are the sort of more typical B2C businesses that continue to, to be strong. But I would say that uh, for the most part, market entry into those spaces is getting a lot more difficult, expensive. Uh, and so uh, I, I think, you know, uh, folks, are, as they're looking to solve their own problems, are sort of moving into these more slightly tangential spaces, not too different from how any digital economy will, will look to evolve. I feel like if we ran some numbers, that would probably be common to a lot of economies. Like if you think about the first wave of like big billion dollar companies in the US, so all can kind of consumer. And then now it's all kind of, it, it went it went kind of enterprise for a while. And now it's like proper kind of B2B SaaS, a lot of it kind of to the longer tail of customers. So I feel like I'd love to run the numbers on that. Um, Tush, Tush, what do you think about um, that question? Um, so for us, I think there's there's a broadly two categories of opportunity. The first is around what Peter calls a need, and that's a regional need. 
um, you know, I think there's still a lot of depth to plumb in, in sort of fintech, health tech, ed tech, you know, how does this region educate itself? How do young children access education at all levels? You know, who do they bank with? How do they get loans? How do they make payments? Um, so all of that, I think, has a lot more, um, lot, more, lot more ground to cover. I think there's a category that we're increasingly excited about. It's, it's SaaS from the region, um, but it's not SaaS for the region. It's, it's SaaS from the region, but for the world, which is the beauty of the SaaS model. Like in Australia's, you know, kind of punches well above its weight in this category. You know, you build global from day one and, and you take your SaaS product to the US or wherever. And I think what we've seen over the last 12 to 18 months, and we've invested in it a lot more as well, is founders from this region building tech teams, building product teams in the region and around the region, but building products that they want to service the US market. So it's a very similar journey, just starting in Southeast Asia. And that's super exciting because these will be global businesses built from the region, just like you have global businesses built from Australia. Mm. And there's a, there's, a third, there's a third category that we're noodling around on and, and deciding whether it's for us, which is around, I mean, Peter, you referred to it as agri-tech. There are certain needs that only make sense in that specific market. So mm. one of the Biggest and best businesses I've come across is a business that provides um, fish, uh, like a a fish feeder into into fishing fish farms, and it's just doing spectacularly well in Indonesia. And we're seeing all kinds of different agri tech value supply chain businesses come up that that attack this really really big incumbent market, um, and that's pretty exciting. And the other other category within that is all around sustainability and, and carbon. Um, Indonesia has one of the biggest um, I guess, carbon reserves in the world, just given how much forest and plantation and, and land it has. And so as, you know, carbon credits become a thing, carbon sequestration becomes a thing, there could be some pretty amazing opportunities that come up in, in this part of the world because of its, its just topology and geography. Mm, so we're, yeah. we're working out how we play that whole space as well. Yeah, I find that really interesting how you segregated it into those areas. And I'd love to like dig a bit deeper and maybe hear about some of your portfolio companies in any of those areas that you might be really passionate about, Tush, whether that's B2B SaaS or on the climate yeah, side. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, so, on, I mean, on the B2B side, the SaaS side, um, we've invested in Kula recently, which is a company that's trying to basically build SaaS for talent, talent managers in, in companies to help them acquire and retain talent. Um, we've invested in a company called Superbase, which is a SaaS, which is a global SaaS play again. These are all global companies. They're, they're, they're sort of building an alternative to Firebase, which is an open source database, an open source alternative to Firebase, which is a Google product. Um, so there's, there's two examples. And then within the verticals that I mentioned, you know, we have Credivo in financial services, which is migrating from being BNPL to digital bank. We have Dr. Anywhere, which is the largest digital health network in the region. Wow. Um, and and in, in EdTech, we have C-Alpha, which is a company that, that's trying to build a platform that connects students in emerging markets to universities in developed markets. So it's something that schools in India or China use to place their students into UNSW or UCID, for example. Wow. Very diverse portfolio. Yeah. yeah. We, don't, we don't have anything specifically in the agri-tech side because, frankly, we just need to work, work out how we play that space, but very keen to learn more about it. What about you, Peter? Do you have any companies in your portfolio that you're really passionate about? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got a company and it's very much along the lines of what, what uh, Tush was talking about in terms of companies from the region, but building SaaS for the world. And so we, we're, we've invested in a company a few years ago now. It's, it's, it scaled really quickly and uh, it's called PatSnap. And what it does is patent analytics. And it's a company that, uh, um, you know, started in Singapore. In fact, um, you know, the, the founders came out of the National University of, of Singapore. And it is one of the leading, uh, you know, uh, patent analytics uh, software uh, in the world, uh, and so uh, you know, selling into a, a, a global audience, offices in the US, in the UK, in China, uh, and all coming out of Southeast Asia. Um, uh, we've also invested in a company called Madalku uh, Funding Society. It's got, it's got two names: one in Indonesia, one in the rest of the region, which is providing these sort of micro loans. It's a, it's actually an SMB sort of lending platform. Um, but in Indonesia, for example, it's providing micro loans for folks to sort of take these loans uh, and they're sort of merchants, they're online merchants, and they're taking loans from Madaku to be able to buy their sort of merchandise and then sell that, you know, on an online platform, Tokopedia or other platforms, uh, and that's their main source of income. So, uh, you know, uh, being able to provide that type of um, uh, capability to those sort of merchants, yeah, it's one of the... because. The difference, I think, between um, maybe Southeast Asia and certainly, you know, maybe more developed markets is that SMB, you know, that is the that's the main source of income for most of the region. Uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, your, your corner stores, you know, imagine like thousands and thousands and thousands of those little corner stores. Right. And, and now that's translating to. Um, you know, being merchants online. And so, you know, social commerce and those sorts of things, I would say that um, uh, in terms of the sort of maturity of those types of businesses uh, in the region, that much more advanced uh, than, for example, in Australia. That's fascinating. That kind of last company you talked about almost seems like a digital Grameen bank kind of model, taking that micro loan concept and scaling it. Yeah, I mean, these loans are as small as a few hundred dollars, thousand dollars. Thing, uh, but it, but um, the, now the same service is uh, is provided in Singapore, and some of those loans can be as big as a million Sing dollars. Yeah, um, uh, you know, so you know it, it's uh, it's quite a range, and and, and uh, whether whether you're a larger uh, SME in Singapore uh, trying to find a million dollar you know loan, or a you know sort of merchant in in Indonesia uh, you know trying to get a loan for a thousand dollars, I mean what's common is that this is a completely under and poorly served segment broadly uh poorly served by um, mainly financial institutions and so there's a ton of opportunity for businesses like uh, credivo um, businesses like funding societies to help bridge that gap uh, i'm gonna ask a question that i think is probably a little selfish because i think i would experience this if, if i lived in the region and you both talked about kind of investing from a market need point of view and obviously these regions still have a kind of large percentage of the population that live under the poverty line. Do you ever feel a tension be between like the kind of innate altruism you may have and you may see businesses that may have profoundly positive impacts, but maybe aren't venture scalable and kind of, you know, returning money to, to your LPs? Is, is that ever like an internal tension? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, we've invested in a company called Erudify which provides um, you know, these sort of relatively small loans for tuition in markets like the Philippines and in Indonesia. Um, uh, uh, and you, you could take that investment from a pure impact lens. Mm. Um, but of course, we're not, we're not purely impact investors. In fact, we're not impact investors. We're, we're, we're a VC firm and a VC fund. And I think that if we, um, 
uh, and we're relatively clear in terms of um, setting up our stall uh, you know, openly and, and transparently. Um, I haven't really, that's probably the, the, the investment where I've sort of come across that maybe a little bit more, where it's sort of mm. blurred into more of an impact plus, you know, uh, VC lens. And we felt great that we could tick on all. But fundamentally, we've got to invest to deliver returns to our investors to be able to continue to support founders, uh, right? And so um, and we're really open and transparent about that. But I do think that at some point in time, just from a heart perspective, I would like to do more in the impact space. And maybe that means an, an impact fund at, at some point in time. Awesome. Yeah, I think pretty pretty similar to what Pete's saying. I mean, there's a reason why the region is very much in the crosshairs of impact investment funds and pools of capital globally from an LP perspective that are doing ESG-related things because there is such a big need for these things. Um, but the reality is that a lot of those those uses of that capital will not generate venture scale returns, and and that's fine if you, if that's that's okay for you as an investor, either an impact fund or as an LP. But it's not fine for us. I think we 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 also want to enable impact in these markets. We want to create a positive change. And I think the companies we invest in do create a positive change. But you know, is it is it entirely altruistic? No. Um, it, you know, we believe that with great impact and with the right business model comes a great venture scale return. Um, so we're hopeful that there's plenty of places where that all those pieces line up, and that's where we get really excited. That's really interesting commentary. I, I think it's like quite a privilege to be investing in that region because every sort of marginal dollar that's investing in that region, even if you're not an impact fund, is always going to have more social impact than a place like Australia, really, um, because there are those needs that we've talked about and uh, you can be helping people that are, frankly, just earn a lot less money than people in Australia. Uh, for, the, for the next section, I'm really interested as we sort of start to round out all of our questions what you find are some of the challenges of the region um, and maybe even like some of the growing pains. So for example, I was, I've been in investigating some Southeast Asian country uh, companies, especially like Grab and looking at their sort of financial statements. And there's a lot of challenges when it comes, as we've mentioned before, the spending power for a lot of companies as they scale, the unit economics, we find them sort of not working as well because consumers just don't spend as much. That's probably one example. Love to hear from starting from you, Tush, what some of the challenges might be for Southeast Asia, if they want to keep on becoming a real sort of ecosystem of innovation? In terms of Southeast Asia emerging as like a, a real tech ecosystem superpower, I think there's a, there's a few things that, that need to be navigated. Um, one is, I think, access to capital. I think, you know, we, I think we have a sense that the region is so hot right now. And, you know, Pete and I are talking to you about how amazing it is. The reality is that most investors, either as limited partners or GP, like global investors, don't really know anything about the region. Um, so they just don't know. Um, and and they don't know and they don't invest in the region. So, you know, you can take an amazing company in the region and take it to a US growth VC. They'll be like, sorry, that 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 region is sort of off limits for us. We're not going to do that. That's becoming more compounded in the last 12 to 18 months. Um, so I think access to capital for companies that is really scaling here can be a challenging. I think the density of talent um, is still, it still sort of has some way to go. I think, um, you know, it, it's it's not like there's been generations of entrepreneurs in tech companies here before. I think we're starting to now see people spin out of companies like Grab and GoTo and start businesses, but mostly they're first-time founders and they're sort of hustling and trying to work out how to do these things. Um, so so I think, it, you know, unlike in Israel, where, where almost every founder is a repeat founder, we don't see that dynamic in Southeast Asia. So I think the ecosystem needs to evolve and mature from that perspective. And, and the third is that the challenge of scaling, and this is also something I think people get wrong about the region, is, is it's very hard to scale a business across more than one country in the region. Like it's a completely different market. It's like going from 
the US to Europe, because doing business and navigating Vietnam is completely different to, to, to doing that in Indonesia. Even doing business in Indonesia outside of greater Jakarta is different to doing business in Jakarta. So you really got to, it, it just makes scaling more difficult. And I, and I think that's, that's just a structural constraint, though. That's never really going to go away. But it's something that you need to understand as you, as you invest in these companies. That's super insightful. What about you, Peter? Yeah, they're great points, Tush. I mean, I think that access to education um, is a, a, you know, one of the big inhibitors as well, um, uh, whether it's you know, being able to, to learn you know, uh, comp sci and you know, uh, to be able to become a, a developer, that type of thing. You know, uh, there's still a long way to go uh, in terms of um, access to that type of education in, in the market. I mean, I'm, I'm not even thinking about you know, sort of, uh, uh, how to be a, a great sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of growth market and that type of thing, just the, the fundamentals of being able to, to build something uh, is still really difficult. Um, you know, the unit economics uh, for, some of, for some types of B2C businesses continues to be a challenge. And so, you know, whilst there is great density of population, whilst, you know, certain sort of labor costs are relatively low, being able to, you know, acquire customers and, you know, uh, make sure that, that sort of, um, that, that sort of uh, lifetime value is, is, is met and kept and that type of thing, um, it's, it's still a challenge. Um, we've, we see um, where something has taken off, we see competition relatively quickly and relatively intense. And so, you know, what the region has become great at is to build, you know, businesses that we see elsewhere, bring them into the region, then lots of competition sprouting up really, really quickly if something catches. Uh, and then that does compress and, and change the, the nature of the unit economics for that type of business model in, in the region. So, you know, uh, whilst there's a lot of um, uh, potential, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily easy. Um, there is... Weirdly speaking, even though the population is so, you know, uh, so large and growing and, and diverse, um, this sort of concentration of talent that Tush is talking about is absolutely an issue. We don't have, we don't have many folks doing the sort of full cycle that we're starting to see in Australia. And of course, we've seen, you know, for, for a number of generations in, in Israel and in the US, we, we, we're at the very, very start of that. You know, we're, we're sort of barely there. Folks were sort of leaving uh, the likes of grabbing those sort of businesses and starting other businesses that, that have started to take hold. We're at the, in the really early days of that. And so, yeah, that's, that's certainly a constraining factor to, to growth within the region as well. Just um, thinking out loud there, it is kind of a risk to the region in some ways that as more companies become fully remote, that top talent end up working for kind of US or European companies? Have you guys kind of thought about that much? Um, I haven't seen it so much on, on my end, maybe to some extent where, you know, um, US, like you can imagine, uh, large US companies like Salesforce uh, can come into the region. Uh, but I, I see it as a net positive because what tends to happen is that folks join a company like, for example, Salesforce, learn about you know uh some fundamentals of uh uh you know of, uh, how sales is done there various types of inside sales for example and then leave you know to then either join a startup or to build a company of their own so i think it's a net okay. positive i've not seen sort of that sort of um uh, sort of talent migration even from a remote perspective go the other way but maybe Tush, maybe you've said on your, on your end yeah, I don't think a lot of US companies, for example, are, are hunting aggressively for individual talent in these markets. I think some of them are setting up shop there and looking at like dev shops and things like that. And they are, there are more of those around today than there were five years ago. Um, but I think equally, um, you know, if you're a regional company and you're trying to create an impact in your market, I think you have 
an amazing pulling power for talent that wants to be part of that impact. So I think we do see a lot of people go work for local companies because they want to have an impact in their local markets. And actually, I mean, recently also witnessed something of a trend where there's people that have left these markets, gone to the US, educated in the US, worked in the Valley from Vietnam, for example, then they're coming back and they want to yeah. start their next business in Vietnam. So actually, and this happened a lot in India as well. A lot of people left India and then the generation later, they came back um, and started businesses in India. So there's almost like a reverse um, to what you're suggesting. Um, so it's just, I mean, the market's big enough to have everything happening at the same time. So it's not one or the other, um, yeah. but you definitely are seeing in all aspects play out. Um, we just on that point that Tush raised about, you know, the sort of uh, Indian diaspora sort of coming back to, to, to India, there is, and if you haven't seen it, I encourage the, the, the folks listening in to just check in on a bunch of papers. I think Besma did one a few months ago on this incredible and awesome wave of Indian SaaS companies that are coming through. So I know it's sort of off topic for Southeast Asia. We happen to also invest in, in, in India as well. And there are some incredible Indian SaaS companies coming through. Please check it out. That's awesome. And, and it, what I was going to say is that um, we had someone called Moses Lowe um, kind of zend it on our <laughs> podcast uh, probably about two years ago. And I think he's a great example of that, of, you know, went to YC and then he bought his company um, back to Indonesia and really scaled it there. Yeah, the talent flywheel, so important. Well, those are such insightful answers, but we're, we've been talking for a long time and we could go on and on and on about this, but we're going to head into our quick buy round, which is one of our favorite parts of the podcast, where we're going to ask you both, We'll probably do four questions each so we don't take up too much time. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to ask you four questions each and they'll last around 30 seconds. Are you both ready for that? Not really, but... <laughs> yeah, the, you can't be too ready for it. All right, we're going to start with you, Tush. What's one of your favorite books and why? Um, so unfortunately, I haven't actually finished a book in the last couple of years. Um, I picked up a few and then put them right back down again. Uh, I've got a young family, like whatever discretionary time I have spent with them. Someone did gift me, um, someone just gifted me the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And and I read the cover and I thought, I think I've internalized the message here. I don't need to read this book. I just don't <laughs> give a fuck. So um, <laughs> that's probably, <laughs> that's, that's my last excellent book. book. What's right. one of your favorite podcasts and why? Um, you should let Peter answer this because I actually don't even listen to podcasts. I'm sorry, guys, but I will check out your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's just say that our podcast is your favorite. We'll ask you that one, Peter. Yeah. Um, if you could get anyone as a guest to a dinner, who would it be? Probably Naval Yol Harari because I think he's got an amazing perspective on both civilization and life and the history of the world. And I'm sure I could ask him a bunch of stupid questions and he'd indulge me and give, give really intelligent yet simple and easy to digest answers. Yeah, mm. he'd be a great guest. Who's your favorite founder in Southeast Asia? Oh, that's like asking me to pick one of my favorite kids. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> or um, look, one of your favorites? <laughs> um, look, um, I, I think probably Akshay at Kredivo. Um, he's, he's an outsider that's, he's not from the region. He's Indian, but, you know, grew up in China and all kinds of places and building a business in Indonesia. Um, it's one of the, the biggest and most impactful businesses in the, in the region. And, and I think he's, he's just, I just have a lot of respect for him just given the journey he's made personally and the business that he's built and, and the hard yards that he's had to travel in a pretty tough market for an outsider. I'll have to check him out. Um, Peter, over to you. And I'll give you a chance to note down your favorite book or podcast if you have one before we dive in. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So my favorite book is probably um, a book called Conscious Business by a guy called Fred Kaufman. I read it probably once every few years again. It's just given me so many great tips that I've applied in my working life. So 
yeah, please, you know, check it out. It's It's been out for, I think it was written maybe about 15 or so years ago. Uh, definitely one of my favorites. In terms of podcasts, um, this is an unusual one. There's a podcast um, series, it's a short one, only about nine or so podcasts, that uh, it's, uh, it's Bruce Springsteen and uh, President Obama together. And it's called Renegades, okay? And they talk about, um, you know, music. They talk about fatherhood. They talk about race. And it's, yeah, I'm, I'm partway through it. I'm, I'm not all the way through it at the moment, but I'm loving it. And so, yeah, I mean, that's another one to, to check out. Awesome. Um, what is your favorite food spot in Singapore? And we can, we can, you can give oh, one push as well if you is, have one. Oh, this is so controversial. <laughs> <laughs> What's um, yours, Pete? <laughs> so I, you know, for, for chicken rice, I like Boon Tonki, but I'm told that Tian Tian at Maxwell is better. I like both, but I don't know Boon Tonki is probably the one that I go to, you know, more often. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, there's this sort of pork bone broth dish called Bakute. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's sort of uh, Singapore, Malaysia. <laughs> yeah. and, um, uh, uh, I like this place called Triple Three that does it in, uh, in Ballastia area in Singapore and they do it super peppery. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're sort of my favourite places to eat. Some of my favourite places to eat in Singapore. Tush, any, any kind of rebuttals to that? No, no rebuttals. I think Tian Tian is better. Um, I eat okay. better already. <laughs> Um, but also if you like satay, which is a very iconic sort of Southeast Asian snack dish, then there's a place called Lao Pathat. And if you walk to the back of that on an evening, there's like multiple stalls, coals, um, there's fire, like flames in the sky and, and people just sort of roasting up satay and serving it to you. And it's, it goes down pretty well with a, with a glass of beer. Wow. Yeah. Me and Adam are going to do a podcasting world tour soon. So we're going to fly through Singapore now after you mentioned that food. <laughs> yeah. um, It'll be more tasty than the... <laughs> Um, It'll be tastier than the plantain banana you eat in Uganda. So, um, yeah, yeah, that. a lot tastier than that. Um, Pete, what's a habit that you have that keeps you grounded that's not meditation? Oh, that's not meditation. Um, I I used to run quite a lot. Um, and I've just started running again. And um, yeah, I mean that's um that's something else that I do to to help keep me uh, grounded. Uh, so I just did like, a, I haven't run for like months, uh, probably closer to like a year. And so uh, I did a long run on the weekend and I'm extremely <laughs> sore right now, but I'm really glad that I did. And I, I'm not sort of big on treadmill running. I want to be out, you know, outdoors, uh, you know, um, ideally running a trail, that type of thing. Just to, that really helps me to sort of get connected back and sort of ground, uh, ground myself and get back into nature. So yeah, that's what I do. Maybe a Bondi to Bronte is on the card so you can see the sunset <laughs> like you have in your photo. Yeah, yeah um, that's right. Last one um, to you both gentlemen. So this one is, you can take some time to think about it. If you could send a text message to everyone in the world, what would it say? I'd write, breathe and be at peace. I like that. Tush, any, anything to add? I was thinking something along the lines of breathe, but maybe it's, but this is a tricky one. I'll just say what's coming into my my mind. I don't know how good it is, but I would just say I'm more like you than you realize. I love that. Those are some beautiful messages. That's so cool. <laughs> well, that rounds out our quick fire and the podcast. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. That was um, a really, really interesting episode. I learned so much in that and I might end up moving to Singapore now because of that. Um, seriously, it's a fascinating region and you guys know so much about it. No, so, awesome. Thank you. Great to be thank- here. Appreciate it.